Well, good morning and welcome to worship this morning. We are so glad you have joined us here. I want to um, I want to begin, if I can, by just bringing us back to this focus that we've had throughout the month of November. We've been kind of talking about November as an opportunity to, uh, to love our neighbor. And you've heard me describe how, as, as a church, um, this isn't just something that, that we um, do because it's, it's a good practice, but really it is our, our belief, our sense that this is our number one opportunity to reach our community, our neighborhood. And it's the very instructions of, of Jesus to us. Um, Throughout the month, we've kind of provided various opportunities. If you'll remember in week one, we gave everybody a packet of s'more stuff. This is like a, a mini packet of s'mores. You need like 10 of these to, to love your neighbor. But, um, <laughs> but, and we just said, look for ways to gather together. Look for opportunities to be in community together, to build relationships, to gather around a table for a meal or in a backyard or around a bonfire or whatever it is. Um, and we know many of you did that. And then in week two, we talked about opportunities that we have both to serve our neighbor and serve with our neighbor. We gave you either a lawn bag. Some of you took these uh, uh, Shepherd's Heart food drive, neighborhood uh, food drive door hangers, and uh, already seen some great, heard some great stories as a result of these. And um, in our, our food drive area has been, our donation area has been packed the last couple weeks. Um, so thank you. And, and again, like these ideas are spreading. Shepherd's Heart saw this and was like, we can we could do this year round kind of thing. Last week, we gave you all a gift bag and said, where's an opportunity you have with a neighbor or a friend, a, a coworker to just have an act of generosity, just to be a blessing to them? Maybe it's somebody that's new in your community. Maybe it's somebody who's dealing with an illness right now or just had a baby, whatever it is. Um, between services, I had a couple say they baked some pumpkin bread put it in the bag, left it on a new neighbor's uh, door. He's, he's living alone because his wife is in memory care right now. And he showed up a couple days later and wanted to thank him, but was talking about how he had celiac disease and he couldn't eat pumpkin bread. Uh, <laughs> and they said he stayed for like 45 minutes. And we just talked and got to, and his daughter's coming for Thanksgiving and she loves pumpkin bread. So they were just sharing like how it, how it worked out and how God used it. And so today, you should find on your chair or a chair somewhere in the vicinity of you one of these cards. And this week, um, as we approach Thanksgiving, we want you to look for opportunities to write words of gratitude to a neighbor or, again, to a coworker, uh, somebody that you're getting to know, somebody within your circle of influence. And just tell them how um, you appreciate them or what they've done that makes you thankful for them. And I think if any of us have received those words, if we've been the beneficiary of that, we know how much impact that can have. Um, but again, it's a small, easy gesture. And so everybody should get a card, an envelope. We've got a handy-dandy Chapel Street pin attached to it. So everything you need to, to leave this on a, a doorstep or on somebody's desk this week to say, I want you to know that, that I'm grateful for you this week. And if this is too plain for you, Stop by our kiosk. There are stickers available. So you can <laughs> embellish this a little bit, make it fancier. Um, and again, as you have stories, like we want to be loving our neighbors year round. It's not just a November thing, but we felt like we needed to and wanted to highlight this in this season 
as we continue to view our, our congregation, our community as being mobilized, sent out into our neighborhoods to be chapels on our streets and to love our neighbors. Um, and we're excited to, to see how God will use that. I want to remind you a couple things coming up that we have. One is next weekend is our um, child dedication service. And so if you have um, a child that you would like to have dedicated but haven't registered, it's not too late. There is a class tomorrow evening, a virtual class. We would love to have you join us for that. We're looking forward to that. Um, the Christmas concert is just a few weeks away, and tickets are going quickly. So if you haven't grabbed one, uh, there's, there's probably about 5% of the tickets or so left. So grab those today. You can do that. Um, and then lastly, you've heard me talking about this marriage workshop that's going to come up in, in January, and we're excited for this opportunity. And today... Um, we have a story of a young couple in our church body and just what it meant to them and how God has been teaching them to invest in their marriage. And we'll hear that in just a moment. Uh, moment. And then we have the privilege of having Pastor Jeff with us this morning. He's going to be opening us up in James chapter 5 and uh, continuing to look at James's vision of a church where their faith is lived out in, in action. So let's pray together and, uh, and we'll open up God's word together. Father, we do just thank you, again, for the body of believers, for the opportunity to gather for community. We thank you that you have taught us to love our neighbor, and we pray that small efforts um, would have big impact and that you would continue to build relationships for the sake of the gospel. And God, I just pray this morning as we gather, Lord, as we open up your word, as we continue to see James's pastoral passion for the church described what it means to live out our faith, Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear and a heart to receive from you this morning. So Holy Spirit, speak. And we ask that all this in your name. Amen. I did not plan on being married right now <laughs> before I met him. <laughs> I'm young. I'm 25. You know, my generation, we don't get married this yeah. young. So we met actually at a bar. <laughs> so not the most conservative Christian meeting there is out yeah. there. The way we look at how we met is that we both were not necessarily on in the right headspace, on the right path, and God put us in each other's lives. When I first met Anthony, I uh, then I did give him my number, but then I kind of ghosted him for three months yeah. because I met him at a bar. I wasn't going <laughs> to talk to this guy. Can't trust him. Uh, <laughs> Next time I met up with Anthony, like three months later, I told him, I said, listen, I don't date men who aren't Christian. He's like, why do you assume I'm not a Christian? You never asked me. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. I just assumed. And he's like, well, I am. Like, I think I was very career driven. I think at the time when I met uh, Jessica and, um, and I think that naturally, I think drove us to really, okay, if this is going to move forward. You know, what do we want in that? kind of future relationship. And for me too, um, I really wanted, again, faith to be a huge part of that. And seeing that like want and that need um, in her really inspired me, I think, to, to grow as well. I feel like the moment that we entered Chapel Street, we just felt like that community there, um, just with a group of people that um, were gathering. So that was something that really drew us. And another thing that really drawed us in as well was the fact that uh, there's a food pantry connected to it, and we are also focused on how can we feed our community 
And to me, that's a very important issue because as a dietitian, I've done a lot of work with like food pantries in the past and just that's something that I value. So from even when we had just gotten engaged, we were very intent on like, how can we invest in our marriage to come? And then once we got married, we, were, we wanted to invest in it. Um, we, even, we did premarital counseling with our pastor. We wanted to make sure we had a strong foundation. And then even when we were married, anything that said marriage, we were going there. Like yeah. anything related to the church, like if it said marriage in it, like we were gonna sign up, we were gonna go. If it's a conference, a talk, whatever it is, we were like 100% down to go. So the marriage retreat that we went to, it was wonderful. The intent of that is really just establish a strong relationship, look out for signs that may not be good signs, and uh, how can you address that and how can you grow? And it, it challenges us to ask a lot of questions and talk about a lot of things that weren't necessarily being talked about or being asked. And I think uh, one thing with some of those classes as well, and you know, you can go through that entire course, um, but all of it's, it's what you put into use, what you put into play. So I think if you take the, the items from that course, take the items from that class, and again, are able to kind of plug into that, really uh, practice what um, is reviewed each week, um, you can really make an impact. I mean, we're such a young couple. You don't think of us as like, okay, let's pursue every marriage yeah, class we can. It's like, oh, is there something wrong? But no, it's just about investing in your marriage early on so that way you don't wait till it gets really wrong to do something about it too. Um, and I think we even told someone that we weren't that close to like, hey, like we're doing this thing in our church and they're like, I think they had asked me or him, like, are you guys okay? <laughs> like, you're <laughs> We're like, no, no, we just want to invest in our yeah. marriage now when we're young, we're just starting out. I played sports in college and like, you want to be good at sports, you have to practice, right? You have to practice when you want to be good at something. So why is that any different in your relationship? Like you have to invest in it, you have to put it in the practice so that way you can be a better player, a better spouse down the road. Wise words from a young couple. I remember talking to this young couple, not them, but a different one in, in premarital counseling, and she said, well, we don't really need this because we just love each other so much. I thought, well, that's exactly why you need this. <laughs> now, there perhaps no institution uh, in our culture is more under attack than Christian marriage, and so uh, whatever stage of married life, if you're a married person, uh, we encourage you to take part in that, uh, th that workshop. It'll be good for you and for your marriage, and so you can sign up and do that today. Uh, you may not know this, but yesterday was a pretty important day in the in Mill Creek uh, Church family. Do you know why? Sterling's birthday. <laughs> Pastor Sterling had a birthday yesterday, so happy birthday, Sterling. Yeah. <laughs> if you forgot to get him a gift, it's okay, you can do it today. Yeah, uh, and you may also not know this, but uh, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Jeff Frazier. I serve as the lead pastor at Chapel Street Church. I've been here for a long time. Uh, and Sterling and I share a history. You'll see an image here on the screen of Sterling and, and myself and, and Pastor Tom Ward. Uh, so I came here in 1999 as a student ministries uh, pastor, youth pastor. And then Sterling replaced me uh, as a youth pastor. And then Tom replaced him. And so we've got a, and all three of us are still here and serving, and so I'm really grateful for that. A great legacy of youth ministry and pastoral work here. And I just, I'll, I'll say it because you know that it's true. I love your pastor, and you're very fortunate to have him. So we do love you, Sterling. Thank you. Let's, let's bow and ask God to speak to us. Father, we've been singing your praises, and, um, and we've come here, uh, many of us um, excited and ready, perhaps some of us a little distracted. Whatever the case, you are present with us. And help us to be present 
with you and to you. As we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, question you can answer by a show of hands. How many of you ever worry about the future? Okay. Anybody say, nope, never? Okay. Right. How many of you ever look at the circumstances of your, your own life, or even more, in, in the culture, in the world, and think, there's more reason than ever to be anxious or nervous about the future? Anybody? Yeah, it's, that's not a secret. Even if you're an optimistic person like, like I am, um, my wife would call me a dreamer, but um, I, I, you know, if, you're, if you have a more chronically sunny disposition or optimistic personality, even still, you look at the world today and in your own, in your own circumstances, in our community. I was with a friend of mine, Pastor Danny Flores of, of a church in Elgin. Uh, he's, uh, he ministers to what's called Tent City along the Fox River. 70 to 80 homeless people living in these uh, tent cities. He's like the mayor. They all know him. We walked, I walked with him and praying with people. And he texted me two days later after doing that and said, the guy you met was just murdered last night pray for the people of Tent City. Right here. This happens every, every weekend, every day in Chicago. We just don't always see it. And of course, the war raging in Israel and in Ukraine and in Myanmar. I mean, there are lots of reasons to be anxious about what's happening in the world. And most of us would say, well, how our life is going now, like you, it's, t- it's tempting to think, well, things are so scary now, what's the future going to bring, right? But actually, do you know that the, the Word of God says for the Christian, it should work the other way around? For the follower of Jesus, it should not be, things are so uncertain now that I'm fearful of the future, but it's the future is so certain that I can live in the present now with patience and with faith. It should be the exact opposite. We just don't think of it that way often enough. And that's at the heart of what, Je- or what James is saying to us here in his letter. We're in a series called Faith Works, or, uh, and it's really about how does our faith work itself out into our everyday life. Last week, you heard the sermon about those of you who plan, make your plans without any thought to God's sovereignty or your own mortality. And now there's arrogance in that. This is the first part in a really th- a three-part sermonette in this portion of the letter of James. You'll see that on the screen here, these three portions. Last week, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, a, a uh, rebuke to the arrogant who make your plans and think you're in control when you're not. And then this week, we're going to look at these last two sections, warning to the rich in the first few verses of chapter 5, a particular kind of rich, and then a, a promise or a comfort encouragement for the poor. Now, the whole section is framed in economic terms, but James is getting at something much, much deeper than just money here. We're going to examine uh, these last two sections together. Let me give you a little Surgeon General's warning here about the first six verses of chapter 5. You know, there are some parts of the Bible, you probably have them, your favorite verse, which when you read them, it's like, it's just comforting. Like you read a certain psalm, you read a certain passage, you're like, oh, I needed that. It's such good for my soul. It gives me peace and comfort. You have those verses, anybody? Right? My guess is James is usually not on that list. <laughs> James is, he's harsh and he's in your face. There is great comfort for the Christian in James if we're willing to face the confrontation, which often comes first, the challenge he gives us first. And so I just will give you a fair warning. We're going to read the first six verses of James 5. Strap yourselves in. Here we go. You can follow the screen or in your own Bible. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So, yikes, whoa, uh, that's harsh. Just scathing words of judgment there. We're going to talk about what he means there. And the next section we're going to look at gets a little, it's a little easier to, a little easier pill to swallow. Look at verses 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right, before we come to these two sections, that last verse, verse 12, about your yes be yes and your no be no, do you ever read James, if you're reading James, and feel like sometimes he just has a hard left turn and changes the subject? It feels like that a little bit. Here's what he's saying in brief. If you, you are all made in the image of God, and if you've been redeemed by the Son of God, then you're his, and his name is on you. You don't need to swear by anything. By swearing, he doesn't mean curse words. He means using the name of the Lord to try to convince people you're serious about what you're saying. And this was a big deal, oath-taking and oath-making in Jesus' day. And James is saying, echoing his brother Jesus, if you belong to God, simply be the kind of woman or man who follows through and does what you say you'll do. Because you belong to the great promise keeper of the universe, the Lord Almighty, and his name is on you. You don't need to swear by anything. Just be that kind of person. And that alone is, is evidence that you belong to him. So, okay, now, the first thing I want you to see here is a prophetic warning. A prophetic warning. John Dixon, our favorite little Australian uh, scholar, uh, who's actually in Egypt right now looking at ancient papyrus. Isn't that cool? He sent me a, a text this morning uh, from Egypt. Was, anyway, whatever time it was for him. Um, he says this is a prophetic lament. And most New Testament scholars agree that James' primary audience for these first six verses is not Christians inside the church, but the corrupt rich outside the church. Well, I'll get to that in a minute. He, the evidence of this is he blasts them. with. Uh, he doesn't call them brothers and sisters. He doesn't call them beloved. He never gives a word of hope or encouragement. He never even says change your ways. He simply talks about the judgment that's coming for their unjust behavior. So he's not primarily talking to people inside the church. So why would he include this in there? Well, a warning to the wealthy in the family of God? Likely. But certainly an encouragement to the poor who were suffering at the hands of the corrupt rich in the world. Most of James' audience are poor and experienced oppression by the rich and powerful. So James is saying, hang on. What you're experiencing now is not the end of the story. Two specific issues James warns us about. It's not just being rich. Like, being wealthy isn't wrong. The New Testament, the Old Testament is clear. Having wealth, having riches is not sinful or wrong. And some of you are thinking, well, that's great because I don't have any, so I'm glad. But you, that's because you compare yourselves to, the, to the, the standard of living in our culture. But if that's the wrong standard. 
on the global economic scale, we are all the richest one half of 1% in the world. We're just comparing ourselves to each other. And so there is a warning for us we should heed in here, even if we're not exactly who James is talking about. But it's not wrong to have riches. The issue is two things. One, hoarding riches for selfish gain. Hoarding riches for selfish gain. Anybody watch the show Hoarders? You see these people who, like, they die, their, their stuff almost, it, it kills them. They just accumulate so much stuff, that, that, which is terrifying and tragic and also oddly fascinating when you watch that show. So he's talking about those who are constantly accumulating for themselves. Their sense of the future and security identity is in what they have. Look at verses 1 through 3 once more. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. In other words, something is coming. Someone is coming. Your riches have, by the, by the way, in the ancient world, people didn't have bank accounts. Their wealth was in flocks, herds, crops, precious metals, and textiles. All are mentioned in this passage. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. So he's saying, you've loaded up and stored up and hoarded for yourself, and the amount that you have stored up for yourself is actually the measure of the judgment coming against you. Any Tolkien nerds or fans in here? Do you know what dragon sickness is, right? Remember dragon sickness? Uh, it's, the, it's the desire for more, the, the power that riches and gold have over you, smog the dragon laying on his hoard, you know. And uh, by the way, C.S. Lewis, friend of Tolkien's, writes about this in The Return of the Dawn Treader, but Voyage of the Dawn Treader, but let's leave that off to the side for a moment. <laughs> the point is, the idea that this, this, it's never enough and the accumulation never satisfies. And I, and I shrink into myself thinking of this, this, all that is mine and all that I need. The more they have hoarded and kept for themselves, the greater the judgment against them. The Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, writes this, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun, that means on the earth, in human life. Riches kept by their owner to his hurt or harm. To the degree that you keep it for yourself, we think it's going to be for our good. But James is saying, actually, that's going to be for your destruction. That's going to harm you. That's going to damage your soul. And you might be, how, how different is this from our culture, right? We talk about people's net worth today. You can go on Google or, and look up people, she is worth or he is worth or how much are they worth. Even that is a terrible, even think about that phrase. To measure someone's worth by the accumulation of wealth. How contrary to the scriptures. But we do this, right? We look, we, and we admire it. We idolize it. We, we are fascinated by how much people have earned and accumulated. We measure each other by this. I was doing a little research because I got distracted this week about the five wealthiest women on earth. Number five is Miriam Adelson. She's worth $40 billion. She's five. She's the owner of Sands Casino and Resorts, among many other things. And I found this fascinating. She opened a center for addiction recovery, among other addictions, addiction to gambling. And she owns the Sands Casino and Resort, but she opened the center. So anyway, maybe she's not hoarding all of it at least. So first James says, those of you who hoard it for yourselves, that which you've kept for yourself is actually going to be the measure of the judgment coming against you when the Lord returns. And the second thing is causing injustice with riches. It's not just, igno it's not just having wealth for yourself. It's not even just ignoring the poor. It's actually causing harm. Look at verses 4 through 6. 
James is crystal clear about this. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of, of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is echoing a common theme in the Old Testament, which is this. Uh, God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, sees and hears the cries of the afflicted, the oppressed, the victims of injustice. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills his brother Abel. Remember the story? When God comes to Cain to confront him about this injustice, what does he say? Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground, and I've heard it. The point he's making is like God is not blind or deaf to the plight of those who are oppressed and hurting. He sees and he hears, and he's going to eventually do something about it. Nothing nothing angers God's heart more than when people use the blessings he gives to harm others, to withhold, to hurt. He sees it all. And James is saying to these rich in the world, look, you've lived a life of self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself. You've had it all your way, but it will not always be so. The judge is coming. Prepare yourselves. He warns the unjust rich to prepare for the worst. The wisdom of Proverbs warns us, better is little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. You might think, well, that, okay, that makes sense. But let me make it personal. If I gave you a choice, you could have $1,000 with the righteousness of Christ or $10 million, but you're going to have to hurt a few people. You're going to have to cut some corners. You're going to have to do some harm. And you can only have those two things. Which would you choose? Well, you're in church. You're going to say righteousness, right? <laughs> but think about it. $10 million? I mean, you've got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. I mean, I, you know, I step on a few people, but maybe I can do some good later. We rationalize, we justify. That he's saying something profound that, that challenges us at the core. It's better to be poor with the righteousness of Christ than to have it all. That's what James is saying. And this has always been God's will for his people, actually. It's what God has always wanted for us. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. I love this passage. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. They'll never cease to be poor in the, in the land. So, th- so what? So then think, well, you can't do anything about it. They're always going to be here, so might as well just get on with my life. No, the opposite. Because there will always be opportunities to be generous, you shall open wide your hands. I want you to do something with me. I want you to make two fists. Ready? Like this. Right? Put them right here. As a symbol of clutching what's mine grasping for what I can attain, what I can hold on to, right? We all understand that. Combative posture, make them tight, ready? I want you to read this passage with me, and when you come, read out loud to that part about opening wide your hands, just do this. Ready, let's do it together, let's read it together. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. See the posture James is saying? You've lived this way your whole life. And the irony is, if you live this way, all you got is what you're holding on to. You can't receive anything. God can't fill it. 
When you open your hands, God can fill it so you can bless others. It's the, that's God's intent. Open your hands so I can fill it and you can bless. Stop clutching and grasping and defending. Now we bring, that brings us to the prophetic promise. A prophetic promise. So the warning and the promise have at their heart the same reality. What's the, what's the, what's the central reality of the warning? What is it? What's the, what, why should they be afraid in the warning? Anybody? Yes, Jesus is coming, right? You've had it your way. You've been in control because you have all the riches and power, but it will not always be so. The, the Lord of, of Almighty is going to return and judge you, judge us all. That's the heart of the warning. But what's amazing is the heart of the promise is the same reality. Jesus is coming. Listen to what he says. Jesus is coming. Verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There's reference number one. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's reference number two. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door, reference number three. Three times in three verses, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming. It's at hand, he's standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the heart of the promise is the same as the heart of the warning. Jesus is coming. But it lands very different for those who belong to Christ than those who live for their own rights and their own selfish gain. And it is this knowledge of the future, right? Remember the question I asked you? Do you worry about the future because of your present circumstances? It's this knowledge of the future, this certainty of his return that should run backwards into our hearts and give us patience and endurance and faith and grace now. Now, there's two very important Greek words in this passage, which are fun to say, but they contain really deep theological and practical truth for us. So you're going to go to, to a little Greek school, which will be fun. Here's the words. The first one, and they go together, is makrothemeo. Right? You see it in the first word, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. That's the word patience. There's two major Greek words for patience, and the other uh, Greek word is, re refers to patience in difficult circumstances. This word, makrothemeo, almost always refers to interpersonal patience, patience with someone bearing with somebody. And it's a compound word, macro meaning long, the male suffering, um, so, or endurance, so long suffering, long endurance. The other is to hang in there and bear with somebody and endure hardship and harm from somebody else over a long period of time. That's really hard. How do you do it? That's the second word, parousia. It means coming of the Lord. That's the word when the coming of the Lord, the word in English coming is reference to that. And they go together. I can, you can endure harm from others patiently, with grace, with faith, and with love even for them. Why? How? Because it will not always be this way. Because the judge is coming. The king will return. Macrothemeo and Perusia go together. The, honestly, the Christian faith makes no sense if, if what the Bible says about eternity and the return of Jesus is not true. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if, you, if, you have only, if we have only hope in this life, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be pitied above all people. If it's not true, 
that Jesus will return and judge with righteousness and justice and restore all things, then we're just kind of playing a religious game here. I mean, maybe it makes you feel better, inspires you, and you live a little better. Some personal morality or whatever, but it's not true. But if it is true, if he is going to return, if he will judge in righteousness, if he will restore, if he will punish the wicked, then it changes everything. This is crucial to understanding not just what James is saying, but the whole of the New Testament is saying. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian who lived through the, uh, the ethnic wars in his own country, in that part of the world, wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace uh, about this idea. Here's what he writes. He says, The practice of nonviolence requires a deep belief in divine judgment. Because if victims feel there will be no judgment against the actions of their perpetrators, they will feel the need to take up arms and secure their own justice. The belief in a divine judge who will ultimately return and judge every action allows Christians to respond to injustice in ways that would be nonsensical without it. You hear what he's saying? If there's no judge, then, I gotta, then you got to deal with injustice. Then we have to make them pay. Now. But if there is a judge, I can release that. I can endure patiently. I can act with love and grace, which makes no sense to the world. Because I know this is not the end of the story. That's exactly what James is saying to the church and to us. Let me get a little Bible quiz, trivia quiz. How, how many references do you think there are to the second coming of Christ in the New Testament alone? 50? 100? What do you think? 150? 330. 330 references to the second coming of Christ in the New Testament alone. That's one reference every 18 verses. If you take the Old Testament and allusions to the return of the Lord and the coming of the King uh, and direct references with the New Testament, there's 1,800 references to the second coming of Christ in the Bible. Eight times more than references to the first coming of Christ. Let me ask you another question. How often do you think about the second coming of Jesus? Every day? Once a week? Once a year? Never? Why is it so frequently mentioned? We, I, I'm like you. I hardly think about it. But it's an in-your-face reality in the New Testament. For a reason. It's given to us for a reason. A crucial reason. The New Testament authors, if you read the New Testament letters, it reads like they thought Jesus was coming back that afternoon. Or maybe, you know, early next week. Doesn't it? They talk about it all the time. And some of you might be thinking... Okay, but uh, wait a minute. Um, he didn't come back. It's been 2,000 years. Were they wrong? Did they just get this part wrong? No, I, I think we have to put it in context. Doug Moo, a New Testament uh, commentator who has a hilarious name, but he's a brilliant commentary, writes this about that. We need to understand phrases like the coming of the Lord is near at, or at hand in the framework of salvation history as a whole. Similar to how we understand what the New Testament authors mean by the last days. The length of the age is not known to us, but it is nearer today than yesterday. The point is that the return of Christ, which is the next big event in salvation history, is from, from the time of the early church to today, nearer, imminent. Now, why is that important? 
the, the whole idea of the, of the nearness of the return of Jesus is not given to make us fearful. And it's also not given us to decode it. Can I just have a little aside here for a minute? Don't send me any more emails with YouTube prophets and people that are telling you exactly when Jesus is going to return. Because if somebody comes to you and says, I figured it out. Have you read this person? Have you heard this message here? Listen to this. Read this. They've, they've decoded the events. And they, they know. You should know immediately. Ding, ding, ding. Wrong. Maybe, maybe don't say that, but think it, right? Because the scriptures tell us explicitly, nobody knows the day or the hour. The, Jesus, while on earth, said it's not even given to the Son of Man to know. So what's the point? It's not to make you fearful or trying to decode it. The point is, so it would be an in-your-face reality every moment of every day. To live as if he's coming. Let me make this practical for you. How many of you have ever done something shameful that you really regret? You don't have to put your hand up. Maybe you wish you could rewind the tapes and undo it. You think, why did I say that? Why did I do that? What? And you, but you can't. And you know you're forgiven, but it, it haunts you, Right? We'll go back to that moment or moments. And, and if you knew beyond a shit, like you were absolutely 100% convinced that in the next minute Christ was going to return, would you do that thing? Would you say that thing? No, probably not. That's the reason. That, that's the point of living with the imminent return of Jesus, that it's in our face. The king is coming. He'll fix it. He'll restore it. That frees me. It's not all up to you and to me. And I can work for his kingdom righteousness without feeling like everything rests on this moment. That's what James is saying to the poor and the oppressed, right? If, if there's a, a verse in this passage that's the heart of the text, I want you to focus on. And if, you, if you've been tuning me out until now, tune in. James 5, verse 8. Here's the verse. Matter of fact, let's read it together. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You, be patient, macrothemeo, long-suffering, enduring with grace and faith. And that phrase, establish your hearts. Sterizo human cardia in Greek. Sterizo means strengthen, fix firmly, take your stand. And cardia doesn't mean, uh, in, in the New Testament language, doesn't mean the organ that's pumping blood. Nor does it mean your feelings, like we say, I love him with all my heart. It means the, the absolute core of who you are. Your, your, your emotions, yes, your desires, affections, and your will, all wrapped up into one. The essence and center of who you are. Establish that on the sure and certain return of Jesus. Fix your identity, your core identity there. Plant your flag there. Take your stand there. It changes everything. My wife and I are watching this documentary on, on Jason Kelsey. You know the Kelsey brothers? There's, there's way too much of them in, 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 in the media now. If you don't know, uh, Jason Kelsey's a center for the Philadelphia Eagles, and nobody would even know who he was, except for his, his younger brother, Travis Kelsey, who plays for the Chiefs, is dating, anybody know? Yeah, right, of course you do. Yeah, it's, this is, the whole thing is totally stupid. But anyway, so they're everywhere. But there's a documentary about his life, and, and most of it's dumb. But there's this one part where he's, he's pondering, should he retire? He's played 13 years in the NFL. And he's wondering if he should be done. And there's this great scene where he's on the porch and he's thinking, he says out loud, I know I've made enough money to take care of my family. I know I can be successful in business. I've got lots of opportunities. But running out onto a field with 60,000 people screaming for you, being the best in the world at what you do, 
where am I ever going to get that? Like, it's kind of terrifying. Like, fix your hearts on who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's doing, but most importantly, what he will do. That's your identity. Because it, it can't be taken away. It's a sure and certain thing. That's what James is getting at, the core of who you are. This is not some lofty, abstract spiritual idea. It's profound wisdom for us right now. And that's why James gives us these examples. Did you catch them? He gives the example of the farmer. Last hour, Chris Gould was here, farmer in our midst. Any farmers here this morning? Okay, well, some of you grew up maybe in a farming family. It's a little bit lost to us today. You know, we're not an agrarian society. But Jesus says farm, there's a lot of waiting in a farmer's life. There's a lot of patience in a farmer's life. You work, you plant, but then you just hang in there, trusting what will come. Take your lesson from the farmer. Then he says the prophets. They endured, and they suffered. And, and they waited and suffered, not always seeing what the Lord promised. And he, what he's saying is their suffering is actually evidence, not that they did something wrong, but they were doing it right. In our culture, we think if you have to wait, and if it's hard, something's gone wrong. James says, no, actually, no. That might be evidence that something's gone right. And then last, he gives us the example of Job. Who suffered like Job outside of our Savior? If you read the, this, the book of Job, it's an exploration on the mystery of, of suffering. And Job is not a guy who suffers silently. He wrestles out loud with God. He asks questions of God. He struggles with the, the, to understand it. But he never rejected his faith. And in the end, we see his heart was established on who God is and what he would do. My, my brother-in-law, Mark, has uh, got a, a dire diagnosis of cancer. He's been battling it for a while. He's in chronic pain. There's not much more chemo I don't think any that he can have. And, and every time I've been with him over the last three years, almost every time he quotes Job. This has become his favorite book. I told him that I was going to reference it this morning. And toward the end of the book of Job, some of you will know this passage. If you don't know where it comes from, you know the, the reference. Job is he's coming toward the end of his wrestling with, with God and his suffering and his pain. And the restoration God gives Job is not that it all is okay and everything. He doesn't give him a, a trite answer for why bad things happen to good people. Here's what he gives him in Job's own words. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart faints and longs within me. The answer God gives Job to suffering and his patient endurance is himself, is his presence and his promise. Hear what Job says? I know my Redeemer lives, and someday I'll see him standing on the earth. I know that, I know that. This is what James is saying to us. Do you know that? Does it inform your every decision and every moment of your life? Do you live with the sure and certain return of Christ like right in your face every day? I don't always, but I want to. How different would your life be if you did, if we did? You, the, the choices you make about your, how you use your money, where you spend your time, what matters, what you freak out about and what you don't. All would be shaped, right, if, if, if we live with the in-our-face return of the king. There is a king. He will return. I know my redeemer lives. I will see him standing on the earth. 
and see him. My eyes will behold him, and so will yours. James is writing to this beleaguered church, right? Well, he's also writing to us, a relatively comfortable and affluent church. Do you know? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these truths, and we claim them again even though we forget and and sometimes struggle to believe. That the certainty of your future return should inform our present-day reality. If we're honest, most of us are, are full of anxiety and worry or trying to control the future. Help us to lay that down again and to live with the sure and certain promise of your return in view every day. That you will return, you will judge all the evil and wickedness in the world that that troubles our hearts. You will restore all things in your righteousness and you will reign forever. We thank you and we trust you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. This is just the perfect response to the awareness and a heart established on a, on a king who will return and who will set all things right. As we go this morning, be reminded, uh, grab one of these from somewhere around you. Hopefully you have it. We should have enough. I know in the past we've done one per family. Um, I, I, everybody grab one. Um, send somebody a note. Let them know this week. You're thankful for them. Um, students or high school kids, middle school kids, you guys can do this as well. This is a, a way that we can let our neighbors know that, that we care about them. excuse me if you came prepared to give today our generosity boxes are are by the side door and as always our our prayer team is available now receive this morning's benediction go in the name of jesus christ the soon returning king let us your church fix our eyes on you and it's in your name we pray amen